Hello and welcome to the first of two uh, podcasts from Tilney on the subject of estate planning. My name is Martin Holden. I'm one of the partners based here in our Thames Valley office in Bracknell. And I'm joined today by two of our specialist experts in this area, Ian Dahl, our head of estate planning, and Jocelyn Davis, one of our estate planning specialists, both of whom have over 25 years experience in this area. Before I begin, I would like to just bring your attention to some important information. Nothing in this recording is intended to constitute advice or a recommendation, and you should not take any investment decision based on its content. Prevailing tax rates are dependent upon individual circumstances and are subject to change. Any opinions expressed may be subject to change without notice. Remember that the value of investments can fall as well as rise, and that you may not get back the amount you originally invested. If you are unsure about the suitability of an investment or if you need advice on your specific requirements, you should seek professional financial advice. Ian, can we start by just asking what is estate planning as far as you see it? Um, I think the first thing to say is what it's not. It's, it, you know, it's not just about inheritance tax. You know, lots of people conflate inheritance tax planning with estate planning. And although inheritance uh, tax is part of it, the way I would describe estate planning is um, it's about how you pass on your assets to the people that matter um, in the way that achieves the objectives that you're trying to achieve. So not just about saving tax. Absolutely. And so part of it may be you know, uh, inheritance tax planning, but for some people that's less important. And what may be important for them, for example, could be you know, maybe they've got um, uh, beneficiaries that they're worried that, you know, about putting money in their hands at this point because they're going through a divorce, or maybe they've got a business which is like to go bankrupt. It could be that they've got beneficiaries who are going to need support throughout their lives, perhaps because of a health reason, um, even beyond the death of the, 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 the client that they're talking to. Um, so it, it's, it's working out what they're trying to achieve and helping them achieve that when it comes to passing on their wealth, basically. Okay, thank you. So Jocelyn, so who is it for then? I mean, so what's the range of people that should be interested in this subject? I think estate planning is for everybody. Um, as soon as you start to acquire assets, perhaps buy, purchase a house, um, and need, you want to start thinking about what's going to happen, should, should I die, what, 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 how are my assets going to be uh, passed on to the people who are important to me. Um, so it's not just for older people, it's for younger people too. Um, and that changes as you go through your life because, you know, you might get married and have children and at all those life events having children maybe having grandchildren you need to think about what's going to happen what what do I want to happen um, with my assets or how do I want to look after uh, my beneficiaries so interestingly because in my experience a lot of people come to this quite late in life and often uh, are quite shame shame faced in the sense that they admit that they've sort of ignored this for a long time so why do you think people are so reluctant to uh, sort of address these important issues? Um, I, I think there's a number of reasons. I think uh, the first one is people are never sure how much money they're going to need themselves, which is a really practical you know, answer. You, you, a lot of estate planning is about passing on wealth. You don't pass on wealth that you feel you may need further on down the line. Um, but there's some psychological issues there as well because... You know, most of us spend our lives saving throughout our, our working lives and see our net wealth go up. Um, it's very difficult psychologically in retirement to start spending money and seeing your net wealth go down because there's always that nagging doubt at the back of your mind, you know, what, am I ever going to need this? 
Well, that's certainly something as a sort of financial planner, I've, I find I come across that all the time, clearly. Uh, hard-working, sensible people don't run out of money. They don't generally develop a sort of crack cocaine habit. Yeah. <laughs> and therefore, um, more often than not, they're likely to hold on to too much money. And that's where, as you know, some of our cash flow planning and our sort of analysis to how much money they need to secure their own future, which quite rightly should be their number one priority, can really help them. And so you think that's a good starting point for estate planning? Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, many people, if they if they could be confident about the fact that they didn't need their money, would like to be able to help their children and their grandchildren. Um, you know, grandchildren have got a, a lot of headwinds that their parents probably never had. You know, getting on the property ladder has got more difficult, paying for education. Um, they probably won't have the same you know, uh, quality of occupational pensions that their parents had. So for all those reasons, many grandparents do want to help their grandchildren, but they just need that confidence to know that you know, if they do need to go into care, for example, in, later on in life, will they run out of money? And therefore, the starting point often is cash flow, you know, some form of cash flow planning to show that even in the worst case scenario, taking everything into account, you know, how much money will that person need? And therefore, by definition, how much is spare to left over? Yeah. Because you spent a lifetime trying to accumulate funds and yeah. trying to be cautious, it's then very difficult to reverse that and say, oh, now I can start giving it away. Yeah. I mean, and, and particularly in the older generations, they're more cautious. Absolutely. Uh, and people tend to get more cautious as they get older, so it becomes more difficult for them to sort of make big life-changing decisions as they, as they do become more cautious. But that's good. No, I think we certainly can uh, come across experience where we can help people mm. in those circumstances. I think there's some other factors as well that people think about. You know, they, when they do pass money on, they're worried about, in many cases, um, that money going in directions that they don't want. So, for example, um, you know, they'd love to help their grandkids, but they can see maybe that the relationship is is not stable, and they're they're worried about that money going to a you know a, an ex husband or an ex wife, etc. Well, as you know, when we do our our seminars, we often mention sort of potential divorce within families, and without obviously knowing the circumstances of all the members of the audience, we always get a few nods mm -hmm. when we. Uh, mentioned that they might have a son-in-law or a daughter-in-law that is not quite what they were hoping for. Um, but but as, as planners, if we know that, if we know that that's a concern, there are ways around that. We can use trusts to enable somebody, for example, to make a gift, but to protect that money in some, some way. Interesting you say that. So trust, that sounds quite complicated. But I mean, you know, before we get into all the sort of the details, where, how do we start with this whole process then? Well, with estate planning, we tend to look at it as a four-stage process. So we try and have a logical approach to try to avoid missing out on any aspects of planning that we could do for a client. So we have a four-stage process. Um, and the first stage we'd like to think is, we could um, summarise it as, say, good housekeeping. So it's looking at all those things that a client could do, um, such as making a, a will, which is, is the starting point for everyone, which everyone should have. Um, perhaps effecting a, a lasting power of attorney to uh, help if you lose mental capacity. And that doesn't just apply to older people who might be fearful about dementia. That might be for younger people in case of accident or illness. So, it can, so everyone should have a, a power of attorney. Um, but there are other things you, you should do as sort of just a basic level of, of uh, estate planning which would be looking at, for example, do I have any insurance policies that aren't written in trust that could be written into trust? Um, 
What about my pension? Who have I nominated to take any death benefits under my pension? Oh, do you mean pension? sort of expression of wishes, which is yes, exactly. what yeah. a lot of people um, forget to do on their pensions? Yeah, and it's a very simple thing to do. It doesn't cost you anything to do it, um, but, it but it it enables you to pass on your um, your benefits to people that you want to benefit and that might need reviewing and updating from time to time so it's important that you keep coming back to things like that so uh, if you're working def your death in service benefits making sure that if, if your company offers you a scheme that you've nominated somebody again to take those benefits um, and it might be also that you've um, recently inherited money uh, and we can look at what to do there to avoid increasing your estate so sorting out your your so this, as you say housekeeping is a good word this is just good administration absolutely just for everybody just before you even get to sort of retirement and worrying about passing money on this is really mm -hmm. just making sure that um we all know we're going to die we just don't know when that's going to happen but if it happens sooner rather than later our, our, yeah, our affairs in are in good order there's, there's some e even simpler uh, points there as well. I mean, ask yourself the question, if you died tomorrow, would would your next of kin know which bank accounts you've got, which credit cards you've yeah. got, where your will is, where the deeds of the house is, you know, just what you own, where it is, you know, a especially list of that. Yeah, especially now everything's online, that's quite yeah. hard actually to know that even accounts exist. So, yeah, yeah. no, actually one of, my, one of my best clients in some ways in, in this respect is put a, a, a it's seems morbid in one sense but it's a very organized letter and he puts everything in about three or four pages where everything is what he wants to do what hymns he wants at his funeral and you know it is that if in the event of my death this is will tell you everything you need to know and i, I think it's a fantastic thing because in a stressful environment oh, as, a, as a death would be that can create a great support for the sort of people that are left to sort out the situation yeah, and and a very emotional time it's, it's really helpful actually yeah. to have something in black and white as to the, that person's wishes for their, as you say, for their funeral arrangements, but also the practical side. We, I remember a client once sending in us a picture of his desk and it had labels on what documents were in which drawers. Excellent. I mean, that's very organized, but that, I mean, it's helpful to everyone. So that's good. So good housekeeping, mm -hmm. just make sure you've done all the basics as the yeah. first stage. Yes. Where did we go from there? I think the next stage then is to start to look at um, um, gift uh, 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 using the allowances that are available to you um, and probably the big ones there are making best use of the nil rate band the residence nil rate band and if appropriate things like business relief and, and agriculture you say the nil rate band you mean the, I think it's 325,000 pound per person when you die yeah so each person when they die has got um, an allowance for want of a better phrase um, equal to 325,000 pounds so in other words, if I've got assets of less than £325,000, there's no tax on that. Anything above that is then generally taxed at 40%. Um, and, and that's each individual, each, each individual, you know, so in a, in a, um, a marriage or a two civil partners living together, they've got, they've each but got... It has to be a formal relationship, either a civil partnership or a marriage. Just people cohabiting. Well, each person's got the allowance, but the advantage if you are married or in a civil partnership is that um, if uh, you don't use your allowance on your death, um, perhaps because you know you've uh, you've not, uh, maybe not got all, enough wealth to fully use it, or um, maybe it you, yeah, passed it directly to a spouse. If you are married, 
then that that nil right bank can be transferred to right. the civil partner so or spouse. So the surviving spouse, yeah. as in my own mother, she's she's got the full allowance from mm. when my father died 15, 20 years mm. ago. But there is a good point there because if you're not married, mm. um, then even passing on assets to your partner, your boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever you want, um, that in itself is a transfer for tax purposes and there could be a liability on first death in those circumstances. And that may mean that they need to um, they need to sell the property in order to pay the tax. So, you know, that's there so are. So it's very important for people who are not married or in a absolutely. civil relationship to make sure that they get wills that reflect their wishes. Yeah, they need to think about what will be the liability on first death and second death. And we often see that. I'm talking about yeah, um, emotional relationships there. But if you're talking, if you you often see, you know, two. Well, an example there was uh, the two elderly ladies who. Um, came to one of our seminars and their concern was that each of them, uh, they were living in the same house because their husbands had died, they were just living for companionship. They weren't really worried about inheritance tax as such, you know, paying tax at the end of the day wasn't a major concern, but their big concern was that on the first death, because they obviously weren't married, there would be a liability that the second person needed to pay, which would then mean that the second person could continue to live in the property. So even though inheritance tax itself was not a concern, you know the the fact that the inheritance tax existed for that on that first death that was the big issue because it would have meant that they couldn't achieve what they wanted to achieve which is and it, it's interesting obviously because as financial planners we don't do wills but one of the most important things we always do is point people in the direction of making sure they do update their will and it's one of the areas that i'm quite happy to if you like nudge people in the ribs and say you know the first thing you need to do is get your wills up to date well, that, that, that's one of the reasons why I'm quite proud of how we approach estate planning at Tilney because um, you know, working on a fee basis, we will look at the whole of the client situation. Uh, you know, we will look at you know, um, all of the opportunities the client's got in terms of their opportunity to plan and then we'll work with the relevant other professionals to put those in place. So although, we, as you say, we don't write wills, we'll identify actually this client needs to change their will and we can work with either their accountant or somebody we can put them in touch with. So we'll spot all the opportunities and act as almost what the Americans would call the quarterback, I suppose, you know, working out who needs to do what to, to get the best outcome for the client, basically. Okay, so we've now, we've done the housekeeping, we've used the allowances, uh, and let's say there's more money in the estate than is covered by the allowances, which is a kind of what one of my clients nicely calls a first world problem. Uh, so where do they go from there? What's the next stage? Um, I think the next stage then is gifting, um, but before you can gift, the question is, can you afford to gift? Yeah. So that's really, to me, the, you know, where the cash flow comes in, uh, or cash flow planning comes in. So, you know, we will look at, um, you know, what expenses the client's got going forward, what their income's likely to be, um, and we can project that forward, taking into account growth on investments, inflation, etc., to work out how much of their money, if everything goes to plan, is spare. And then more importantly, we can stress test that with, you know, let's say one of the partners you know, needs to go into care um, or the biggest pension earner dies first. What impact is that going to have on the situation? So looking at the worst case scenario, how much of that, you know, how much the, um, how much is the client going to need and therefore how much of what they've got can they afford to either spend more of or, or, or gift away? And we've obviously talked about this in the past, haven't we? Because 
we have some very clever technology and we also have a lot of experience in helping clients put these cash flows together. I've seen some pretty awful spreadsheets in my time from clients who are trying to estimate how much money they need. Uh, but what's important is that we establish how much they need to retain for their own future. And as you know, no one wants to go into long-term care, but we always hold back a little bit of money and we make sure we give them a full inning. So we, we say, well, let's assume you might live to 95 or even longer if you've got um, older relatives in the family and then make sure they've got enough to retain and to maintain their own financial security. Mm -hmm. That's their number one priority, isn't it? Really? And we factor in normal sort of purchases, don't we? Like oh yeah, cars new cars, it could be a new patio, a new yes. kitchen, uh, mm -hmm. you know, a new drive, all these things that sort of occur every few years and then gifts to the children, etc., etc. So we've done all the, the planning and we've established uh, great news. There is still some money left mm -hmm. over potentially and uh, we don't want our clients to be the richest grove in the graveyard. So where do they go from there? I think you start with looking at um, gifts that would be exempt from inheritance tax. Um, so, for example, every year you can use £3,000. You can use normal expenditure out of income, which is if you have surplus income, you can give that away. Um, and there's no limit on that exemption. So, But you can't uh, live on bread and water in order to give all your... Your no, you have to be able to maintain your normal standard of living, yeah. um, and it has to be from income. It's not surplus capital. This is surplus so you income. can't use capital withdrawals or withdrawals from your uh, tax-free cash from your um, ISA, for example. No, no, it has to be pure income. Okay, it doesn't have to be a, taxable. You could use the dividends from the ISA. Yeah, so, so yeah. any dividends that are produced, that's income, but the actual capital is is not. And you said regular, so that's not something you could just do every now and again. No, it, ideally it would be something like, um, well, for example, you could use it to pay premiums, so it's a monthly regular direct debit or a payment on a like annual basis to somebody if you wanted to do a direct gift. So yeah. And of course, one of the advantages about paying money on a regular basis to members of the family, if there's ever a problem in the future, you can always turn that tap off, can't you? Absolutely. I've got experience of clients mm -hmm. who've possibly given large lump sums away and maybe come to regret it in the future, whereas if you're giving just a regular amount out of your surplus income, can you can potentially, as one of my clients described it once, I'm keeping my children honest. <laughs> yeah. uh, which I thought was quite a nice way of describing it. Making sure they keep visiting mm. you. Well, yes. uh, if you are going to do that, though, it's important to keep good records because if you can imagine again, your executors, you're gone, your executors are going to need to look back and they're going to have to say, seven years ago, what was this person's net income? Yeah, and... Um, yeah, what was their expenditure in that year, seven years ago, to, sh to prove that this money isn't affecting your standard of living? Um, so keeping good records is yeah, So it's, it's probably more for our, the more well-heeled clients, in a sense, isn't it? Surplus income is likely to be something that is, is an issue for, for relatively wealthy people. Well, as I say, you've got to have excess income. Yeah. Um, so you know, many people aren't fortunate enough to be in that position. But for those who are in that position, it's a really, really yeah. useful benefit. So. But as with a lot of clients, they get to retirement nowadays, particularly with um, defined contribution pensions rather than more of the old defined benefit ones, where they have a very large capital sum. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily have that much income, mm -hmm. but they do have a capital sum which needs to last them for the rest of their life and then potentially provide for their family as well. Well, there are yeah. other exemptions they can use yeah. against capital, which would be, for example, gifts to charity, gifts to political parties, not always that popular. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, 
Gifts of marriage is another one. Yeah. Oh, yeah so if you if your child gets married, and you can give, yeah. is it three thousand pounds a year? Is that per no per marriage per child? Or if you wanted to give three thousand pounds to your children each year. So there's two separate things there. So it, you've got an annual allowance of three thousand pounds. Yeah. Um, which um, is the first three thousand pounds you give away, whether that's one gift of three thousand or three gifts of one thousand pounds, that's exactly. Oh, right, it can't yeah. be three gifts of three thousand. No, got to be one gift, three thousand in total. Yeah, per right. year. Yeah. Um, if your child gets married, in addition to that three thousand pounds, a parent can give away five thousand. Each parent can give away five thousand. Each grandparent two thousand five hundred. Anybody else a thousand pounds. So it's useful. To, so there's a range of different opportunities to make gifts. Yeah. And these are immediately outside of your estate. Um, there's no none of this seven year rule. Um, should we just touch on the seven year rule because that's what a lot of people sort of use that phrase or have heard that phrase and it doesn't automatically uh, mean they understand it. So what happens if you've used these, you know, exemptions to give away small amounts? And you're still in a fortunate position to be able to have some more that you wanted to give. Well, it, once you've gone beyond your exemptions, so the three thousand yeah. pound a year, for example, any gift that you then make beyond that um, is then what we call a potentially exempt transfer. Yeah, um, and what they mean by that is that um, provided you live for seven years after you make that gift, it will then be exempt. Um, but if you die within that seven years. In effect, it's still part of your estate for for um, inheritance. But the tax. seven years means it's not all or nothing, though, isn't it? Isn't doesn't the number of years become relevant? Uh, yes and no. Do you want to cover that? Oh, only only if um, you're gifted in excess of your nil, available nil rate band. It starts to get a little bit complicated, but as soon as you make substantial gifts over your available nil rate band, um, then the tax payable is payable by the recipient of the gift is subject to something called taper relief so the tax goes down over time it's it's probably easier if you give an example so if i've the nil rate band as we said earlier is three hundred and twenty-five thousand pounds um if i give away one hundred and twenty-five thousand pounds then the impact of that gift is that it will reduce my nil rate band from three hundred and twenty-five thousand to two hundred thousand so effectively it's eroded part of my my nil rate band, and that will remain eroded for the whole of that seven year period. There's no tapering, yeah, it's just a, I've got less allowance, so, so the estate can pay more tax. Yeah? If instead of giving away £125,000, I gave away £425,000, then the first 325 will eliminate the, the personal yeah, exactly. allowance, yeah. So, you know, all, and that will be the same for the full seven years. But that other £100,000, that will create a liability for the recipient of the gift. Um, and their liability tapers with time. So as Jocelyn says, it's only once I've gifted more than the nil rate band that the taper relief starts to kick in, which is a big misconception amongst many clients. Okay, so it's, it's a little bit more complicated than perhaps at first sight, yeah. but it does, I suppose, lend itself to the fact that um, none of us know how long we're going to live, but we all know that next year we've got one year less to live than we have today. So yeah. seven-year clock starts ticking from... The date of the gift so if you keep putting these things off Absolutely. you're kind of you're you're risking getting into um, a position where that this complication might come into into play after you die so the, early, the earlier you start the better because then you as you say you've got the seven years and then that's up and then you can start <coughs> you can start again with the next seven years 
And that's why when, when clients are nervous about making a gift because of perhaps divorce or bankruptcy and all those points we touched on earlier, you know, that shouldn't be a barrier to making gifts if that's what they want to do. Um, because we can make gifts outright, as we just described, which could be an issue, but we can also make gifts using trusts. So trusts, as you said earlier, sound complicated, and I suppose if you're going to draft one, they are. But actually, if you put money into a trust, what you're effectively doing is making a gift. The difference between an outright gift and a gift using a trust is that with a trust, you've got some control over that, that money, even though you've gifted it away, because you can decide who benefits, when they benefit, what they benefit from, um, how the money's invested in the meantime. Um, and depending on the type of trust, it also means that we, um, the, the beneficiary of that trust, the child, if you like, um, because they're not absolutely entitled to the money, um, potentially if they do become bankrupt or get divorced, that money can be protected in that circumstance. So that's really important, isn't it? Because that's one of the main reasons a lot of people are nervous about making gifts because, mm -hmm. you know, I've, I was talking to clients last week, three adult children, one of them is not married or in a relationship and the other two are both settled. So they're very happy with the two that are settled, but they think, uh, in their own words, that their uh, eldest son is a bit feckless. And, uh, <laughs> it, it, judging by some of his past uh, partners and in relationships <laughs> that he's been in, they would be nervous to give him a large amount of money at this stage until they know that he's properly settled down. So maybe a trust would be a suitable... That's a perfect opportunity um, for a trust. ...opportunity in yeah. that, that case. And you'll often find in a family situation that it's a combination of different types of gift. As it, that's yes. a perfect example. You'll find, I'm happy to make an outright gift to this person, but for this, this person, you know, because of X, Y, Z reason, um, you know, we'll, we'll use a trust in that circumstance. But that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because how many times do I come across clients where they've got children, adult children, possibly in different circumstances? And, but they all want to treat their children equally but then possibly circumstances might suggest that that may not be appropriate. Um, that's a, a conundrum. That's not really a financial planning issue, but it is a difficult challenge for people. But, but this is where estate, why we say estate planning isn't just about inheritance tax, because that, that's nothing to do with tax. That's yeah. just trying to um, organise your affairs in, in, to help your children, really. And, and, to, and from the parents' point of view, they are actually giving away their money, but it's not outright. So with a trust, you have that control. You can control when the beneficiaries receive the benefits, if so at they all. Can, a trust can achieve a lot of, uh, address a lot of the concerns that mm. people might have. To, so they might be more willing, in a sense, to put money into a trust, which they would be unwilling to maybe hand straight over to... Well, I think it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Because if, you've, <laughs> if it's your hard-earned money and, yeah, yeah. You, and you, you might watch your children... Yeah spend it in a way you don't necessarily agree with or maybe your children's partners absolutely yes <laughs> so so a trust sort of allows a perhaps to drip feed that through and to, or to control what happens to it or it, it allows you to start the seven-year clock today but then decide later who benefits and how they benefit because uh, as you say many people want their children to benefit equally um, but let me ask them the question then if one child then let's say had an accident um, and was going to need extra support throughout the rest of their life because of that accident, would they still want it to be 50-50? Many clients at that point would say, actually, you know what, I'd rather divert, and probably the sibling as well, would want to see more money in diverted to that other person. 
justify and I've seen yeah. I've seen that the other way around as well, where they've got one child who's who's um, very wealthy in their own right, so they don't particularly want to benefit that child. They want to benefit the other child, yeah. But they also want to be seen to be fair, so they might a trust is a way of perhaps holding back money for the more wealthy child. And if, for example, the trust had been going for two or three years since the date of the gift, and all of a sudden they wanted to then make it more of an absolute gift because that son I was talking about earlier had settled down with a lovely new partner mm -hmm. and everything was very rosy and they wanted to even it would they would the trust then create restrictions or would they then be able to sort of uh, make that money no, available? most trusts are drafted in a way that gives them the powers to then do that so just so the actual kind of trust only applies when you need it to yeah. and if circumstances as hopefully they would become more uh, stable and, and straightforward, then they don't need to keep the, keep the trust arrangements Absolutely. indefinitely. Well, the trust's well, always there, but it, the trust, uh, until the whole of the trust fund is distributed. Right. But mm -hmm. um, up until that point, you can have control over who gets what and when they get it, depending on the type uh, another, of trust. Another place where I think trust, because another um, a, a, a resistance to estate planning and I've got some sympathy for this, is where clients say, um, well, a prime example is um, Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett um, once said that he wanted to give his children enough that they could do anything, but not so much that could do nothing. Yeah. In other words, they, they, he didn't want to remove ambition in life by giving them the sort of crazy wealth that Warren Buffett yeah. had got. Um, so, but what I trust enables people to do is put money aside. So let's say that one of you know, his children then, for whatever reason, you know, fell on hard times, there, there could be a pot of money there that could be dipped into to provide for them, which they don't get if they don't need it, so that they've still got that ambition in life. So, so, we, so understanding what a client's trying to achieve, and that's really important, what's their objectives, um, enables us to tailor that planning to achieve that. Fine. So that's good. Thank you for that. So we've kind of, going back to the four process Jocelyn we've done the housekeeping we've used all the allowances we've talked about a cash flow to understand um, how much people can afford to uh, to give away knowing that their own future secure and then they they can gift either directly or with uh, with trusts or with any kind of um, uh, controls in place for want of a better word so where do we go for the fourth fourth step well the fourth step and probably the last sort of mop-up step if you like is uh, life assurance. So we look at all those aspects first, and then we look at what's the residual liability. Um, and that's where life assurance comes When you say liability, you mean inheritance, inheritance liability. liability. So, uh, yeah, so, okay, so, that, so life assurance, a lot of people think is to do with, you know, covering the mortgage and, you know, paying for school fees if you've got children in no. that type of situation. No, this is to cover, um, the liability that might be left after we've done all the other planning um, and provides a lump sum in the event um, of someone's death or the event of second death for married or... So that doesn't save any inheritance tax in itself? It, it doesn't, apart from with the premiums that you pay, because you have to remember this policy would be written into a trust, so it pays out um, free from your estate, so free from inheritance tax in itself. So no, you're right, the policy itself um, is covering the tax, but the, the payments you're making into that, um, into that policy can themselves be exempt from inheritance tax. All right, so effectively it's designed to pay a lump sum that will pay the tax, mm -hmm. 
yes. and therefore leave more of the other assets to be passed on to the absolutely yeah to the beneficiaries. But this arguably got a more important benefit to some extent. So it is a very it can be a very efficient efficient way of paying the tax, but also there's a bit of a cash flow issue on death because. Um, Inheritance tax has to be paid before probate can be granted. Yeah. And probate needs to be granted before the assets are released, which may be the assets that you need to pay the inheritance tax. So um, now there's some exceptions to that. Property, for example, can be paid in instalments. But um, the point I'm trying to make is for many people, actually having the, the physical money to pay the tax before probate can be granted is a problem. Um, and having a life insurance policy written in trust um, uh, that money can actually be paid out prior to probate, which then frees up the rest of the assets in the estate. And so it's a quick it's a quick payment because the trustees of that trust can apply for the benefits straight away, so it can pay out within you know a week, two but weeks. But just so um, th th these type of whole of life policies, I think they're described as, aren't they? They have to be paid the premiums throughout the person's whole life, doesn't it? So. Just take the example where a couple maybe in their late 60s would take out a policy like this and then, as is inevitably the case, one of the partners dies and then the surviving partner carries on. What happens if those premiums become a bit of a, an expense issue later in life? I mean, uh, is there any sort of things that... That's a concern I know a lot of my clients would have about that type of uh, taking on that kind of commitment. Well, I think there's two things there. The, the first thing is that not all whole life policies are the same. Um, you've got two broad types one's a guaranteed whole of life and one is reviewable with a reviewable whole of life the premiums can go up over time um, so if somebody lives you know too long for, they may price themselves out of that policy so generally we'll use um, guaranteed whole of life where they're guaranteed that as long as they pay that level of premium then that amount of money will All pay right, so both the premium is guaranteed well as the correct yeah paid out. and that's important if you think about it because the so yeah the 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 risk to the insurance company goes up exponentially as time yeah. goes on so if somebody does live to 110 they're on a pretty steep curve in terms of how much that that yeah. um, is costing the insurance company and the insurance company on the reviewable whole life can push the premiums up uh, whereas guarantee we can we can avoid that the cash flow actually can in that circumstance um, we can take account of those premiums to show that that's still affordable over time. All right, and okay. what happens on the first death? Yeah. Okay, so that's so we've it's, so there's quite a lot to it overall. It's a four stage process. It's not as though I mean people can dip in and out of these things, but ultimately to do a proper job, we'd like to think as professional advisors, we would take people through it, make sure that they're yeah, comfortable not every, with the not, ideas. Not every, not every stage in that four stage it's process necessary. is applicable to everybody, but at least if we go through them, we know. What, what we're and is, there's other aspects as well, isn't there? I, you know, there's things what they call tax-led investments, and then there's pensions in inheritance. I mean, mm -hmm. pensions are a very different vehicle. A lot of people obviously keep their pensions nowadays. So, do you want to just touch on that? Uh, that's an interesting one, to be honest, uh, because uh, there were big changes in um, 2014, uh, which many people called the sort of pension freedoms, and the one that the press focused on largely was around. The fact that people at that from that point onwards didn't need to buy an annuity um, with their with their pension, they could stay invested, and they could actually take uh, all of the money out of their pension if they wanted to, and go and buy Lamborghinis. Um, um, and 
you know, I don't know about you, I've not seen that many Lamborghinis on the road, so I'm guessing that's, <laughs> that not, that's not what happened. Not where I live. <laughs> yeah. So, but uh, to me, the more interesting change in 2014 was that the way any remaining funds in your pension was taxed on your death um, changed at that point in time. So let's be more specific at the moment. These pensions that I'm talking about are what I call money purchase pensions. This is a pension where there's a, a pot of money which you then rely on to, to provide an income for the rest of your life, as opposed to what I call final salary, which is like doctors and nurses where you get a percentage of final salary. Not many people have those yeah. anymore, do yeah. they, obviously? Yeah. So, um, so up until 2014, if I died with some money still in my pension plan, um, after the age of 75 then that money was taxed at 55%. And because 55% is higher than 40% inheritance tax, it meant that pensions were not a good estate planning vehicle and you were far better off spending your pension rather than dying with any money that was left in that pension fund. Yeah. In 2014, that changed. So at that point in time, what happened was that any money that was left in your pension fund um, on your death after 75, um, could be passed on without inheritance tax and the only tax that would be payable would be the income tax that the, that the beneficiary normally pays. So if they're a basic rate taxpayer, they would pay basic rate tax as they drew down on that pension. Um, which means that the whole purpose of pensions for many people has changed. Because if, if you know, we've got a client who is, let's say, a 40% taxpayer, but their beneficiaries are 20%, it makes far more sense for them to preserve their pension um, and so pass on the pension yeah. as, yeah. A, as, a, as a state planning vehicle. So the pension's the last thing they spend on themselves. In that circumstance, They tend yeah. to sort of spend yeah. their ISAs and their savings and then pass the pension on as mm. the sort of last asset uh, available in their resources. Yeah, That's for many people, they should live on their capital um, because, you know, they can take a capital without tax to some extent, so it's good from income tax and potentially you know, other taxes, uh, and, and, and preserve the pension and use that as the estate planning vehicle. But that's not for everyone. You know, if their beneficiaries are higher rates and their basic rates, you know, there's probably different strategies that apply in that circumstance. Okay, that's really interesting, thank you. I mean, so essentially, in summary, there's, there's quite a lot going on here, and a lot of uh, the planning we can add is by understanding what tax exemptions, allowances are available, also to understand what the tax rates are for different things such as pensions and ISAs and houses and mill rate bans, etc. So, um, you know, there is a lot can be done for people in these circumstances. And how would you just kind of summarise the overall position and, and almost encourage people to, to do something? Because I think that's what we're saying is a clear message, isn't it? I think a starting point starting point actually is to decide what you're trying to achieve and that sounds easy but you know that's often where an advisor can help most because they can challenge the client's thinking and and they know all the things that the, the client needs to be thinking about when they're looking at how they pass on their assets the client knows their family we know the solutions it's trying to find you know but we can also initiate a conversation can't we Absolutely. because obviously talking about death and money is not exactly uh every day around sort of the, the kitchen table conversation. Absolutely. So yeah. in a sense, coming to uh, a third party who can bring those sort of subjects um, onto the agenda in a professional way yeah. is probably um, really helpful. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our estate planning podcast today. Um, I hope you found it of benefit. 
But if you have any feedback or questions, please send us an email to podcast at tilney.co.uk. And finally, if you have any suggestions for future podcasts or would like to leave a review, please do so on the uh, podcast uh, platform that you use. Thank you and goodbye.